much for being with us today. As we prepare this time of year to take our Prime the Pump offering, we've talked about some of the different ways that we want to use it to offer compassionate care in our community and in the church. And then each campus wants to be able to do something specifically to enhance the church experience, to make it a place that really, really, really shows the excellence of Jesus Christ. Here at Old Brooklyn, we want to make some improvements, and we have old front doors that need some updating so we want to be able to purchase new doors that offer not just the look but the security that our entrances need as well as we want to start offering a technology that allows us to interpret our services for our spanish-speaking friends so that they can be included in our worship services as well we're asking that you pray along with us and see what god might be able to do through you and your family as you give generously to prime the pump offering he is so gracious to us. We have all that we need to do every good work that we need to do right now. Thank you for considering partnering with us in this incredible opportunity to give generously here at Christ Church. Let me say a prayer for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for what an incredible God that you are. I thank you that you are a God who is gracious. I thank you that you are a God who is there for us when we need it. I thank you, Father, that you find us, know us, and call us by name. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to you today as we learn one more time how wonderfully awesome and surprising Jesus Christ is. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen Covey reminds us in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that we all have paradigms that help us shape the way that we see the world. And these paradigms basically are mental maps, and we have many maps in our head that can be divided really into two big categories. The first map is the way things are, reality. The second maps are the way things that should be, or values. And he says what happens is we interpret everything that we experience in life through these mental maps. We don't usually question ourselves or the accuracy of these because we're usually not even thinking about them. They're just there. Some of us were born into a certain context and a certain culture, and it shaped the paradigm, the lens that we see things through. Some of us were raised a certain way, and that shaped our paradigm. Some of us grew up in one side of the world or another side of the world, and it all creates these lenses, these maps, that help us interpret the reality of the world or the way that we think the world should be. And since we don't usually question the accuracy of them, many times we miss when our mental map isn't right. We assume that the way we see things is the way that they actually are or the way that they should be. And what happens is our attitudes, our behaviors, they grow from these assumptions. The way we see things becomes the source for how we think and how we think chooses how we act. And we think we see things as they are, that we're objective, but one of the tensions that life teaches us is we're not as objective as we think we are. We see things not as they are, but as we are, or as our mental paradigms have been conditioned to see things. We think it, we look at out the world and we look at things around us and we see it objectively and clearly, but we only see them as we truly are. So what happens is our paradigms, our mental maps, shape how we do life and how we think about life and our reality, but it also shapes how we think about faith and our relationship to God. We have paradigms on how we see the world. We also have paradigms on how we see ourselves and how we see God. 
And these paradigms are so powerful because they create the lens through which we look at everything. Interestingly enough, the Apostle John understood this. He'd met Jesus Christ and spent time with him, and it shifted his paradigm, not just for how he saw himself, but how he saw his relationship to God and his relationship to the world. When Christ showed up and John met him, he and his brother James followed him, and it changed the entire trajectory of his life. And when he sat down to write his gospel, he was a much, much older man. He'd had a lifetime of thinking about his time with Christ and what he'd learned from Christ and what Christ had taught him. He'd had a lifetime of thinking about Christ and teaching about Christ. And when he sat down to write his account of what he'd seen, what he'd witnessed, what he heard, he gives us a surprising and beautiful lens for how we think about Jesus Christ. And he starts right from the beginning in the opening of his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, we've been looking at each one of the Gospels and seeing what does this show us about Jesus Christ? And it's interesting because they all start in different places. Matthew goes, let me talk to you back about the genealogy of Christ. And he connects Christ to the promise God made to Abraham and the promise God made to David. And God keeps his promises and we see this happening through Jesus Christ. Mark's adventure, he jumps right into the story with John the Baptist and he connects it to a prophecy from Isaiah 700 years before Jesus Christ. Luke says, let me tell you how I studied and my method for understanding and researching. And he begins with the birth of Jesus Christ. And then John says, let me start at the beginning, but I'm going to go way back here. Like we're throwing not just a little bit back, but all the way back to the very beginning of creation. The opening words of the Bible, Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John wants us to connect way back to the creation of everything. In eternity past, John wants us to know Christ has his origin in eternity. And it's very interesting because the word that he uses when he says, in the beginning was the word, we understand the word to be Christ. And in the Greek, this was the lagos. And the Greek philosophers, they had all these theories about how the world worked and our relationship to the world, and they theorized that there was an organizing, ordering principle at work in the world, and they called it lagos. It was eternal and an unchanging truth that was present from the time of creation, and it was available to anybody who would seek it out. Aristotle believed that the Lagos was reason and rationality, and Socrates believed that it was the distinguishable characteristic of a thing. That's what characterized it and set it apart. And now with our translation and our understanding, it came to mean the idea of thought and speech and logic. And John says, let me tell you something. What the true Lagos that you've been thinking about and theorizing about for hundreds of years, the true Lagos is Jesus Christ. He's the logical expression of God. And in the Hebrew sense, the prophetic word was how God spoke. He would speak the word to the prophets and they'd share that with the people. And the prophetic word, God professing himself through Jesus Christ. 
the word is that which reveals and john says this is who christ is in the beginning was the word the logical expression of god and christ is that word revealing god to us we know who god is through jesus christ and so he wants us to have this right paradigm this right mental map from his very opening words when you think about christ have an eternal understanding of who he is from the very beginning christ existed he was there when the whole world was spoken into existence he was with god in the beginning and he has existed for all time there has never been a time that christ didn't exist it's easy to miss that because we see the Bible broken up and you see the Old Testament and the New Testament and then we think about the world now and we think, well, Jesus didn't really show up until he was born in the New Testament. But John wants us to know, listen, this Christ, this word, this Lagos, he always, always was. He always has been and always will be. Every visible expression we have of God from the beginning till now we've seen through Jesus Christ. Christ was there speaking our world into existence. Christ was there, everything we know, breathing life into creation. He was part of the process. In the beginning, God created everything and breathed life into humanity. You can read in the creation account, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living thing. The difference between humanity and all creation, God literally breathed life into us. This life that Christ has enlightened and made us human is our distinction in him. In Jesus Christ was the light of man. We're more than just physical creations. Christ has breathed into us the life of God, which opens our eyes and our hearts and our minds to reality. Everything that has life, everything that has existence is because of Jesus Christ. He's the source of life and knowledge and the light that shines in the darkness and guides the way. So when John says, let me give you a mental map, a paradigm, a lens to look at through Christ, this Christ is fully God. He's always existed. He's eternal and divine and has the power of creation in him. And then John wants us to really understand this huge, awesome, powerful God, the majesty of Jesus Christ, because what does he tell us this internal God did? Jump to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal expression of God changed how he expressed himself. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, there's so much rich theology and understanding in this. If we had three hours, I could unpack this and go back to some really cool nuances from the Old Testament. But really what it's saying is, when it says the word dwelt among us, Christ set up his tent on earth with us. He literally made his home among us. Now, he moved in, if you want to make it real late, he moved into our neighborhood. Christ came in and moved into our neighborhood. 
Now, usually, I don't know if you've ever had to move before, or you bought a new house, like, you upgrade. You look for a house that has more space, or better, or newly renovated, or more accommodations, more modern fixtures. When Christ moved neighborhoods, he moved from the splendor of heaven and set up his tent here on earth. He downgraded. He didn't upgrade in his home. He downgraded. He left this beautiful blessedness and joy with God in heaven voluntarily to come into this world and the hardships and the miseries of the human life. He came and set up his home that by his sufferings and death, we all have salvation available to us. So here's a huge concept that John wants us to understand. Here we have Jesus, fully God, becoming fully human. He was always fully God, and when he came into the world, he took on humanity. He didn't lose being God, he took on humanity. He's perfect in his divinity and in his humanity. Christ was a human being. You can read, and he slept, and he wept, and he ate, and he talked, and he was there with his friends. In his form, in his language, in his thinking, and speaking, and feeling, he was fully human. But he was never just human, but God incarnate. God made human in the flesh. John Calvin, the theologian, said, God chose to descend to us. Here's how he put it. This is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us, becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him, that by his descent to earth he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us, that by taking on our mortality he has conferred his immortality upon us, that accepting our weakness he has strengthened us by his power, that receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, he has clothed us with his righteousness. Now this is huge in our understanding of Christ. Christ isn't just some wonderful idea or some lofty noble symbol. He truly existed on this world in space and in time. He came into the world and became fully human for us. And then while he was here, you read throughout the Gospels, he went towards people. He connected and identified with the oppressed and the hurting, and he reversed places with the poor and the downtrodden and the overlooked. God loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world on our behalf. God came down to us because we could never get up to God. God extended his love towards us because we could never get to him on our own. There's too huge of a divide between this holy, wonderful God and us. But God crosses that divide. He bridges the gap in Jesus Christ, reaches out his hand to us, and gives us this new life and this new hope in Jesus Christ. We see God's awesome love for humanity in what Christ did when he came here on the world. He revealed the lengths that God is willing to go to on our behalf. And our image, our paradigm of thinking about Jesus Christ, 
always begins with the overwhelming love and grace that God has for you and I. John said, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Now, maybe you've heard this before. This has become like something that just is religious speak, and you're not really sure why it's like surprising because everybody talks about it. This is shocking. It was shocking when John penned these words. In his uh, day and age, it's shocking today. It was shocking to the Greek philosophers. Hundreds of years before Christ, they were thinking about the world and the lagos and how things worked. And the Jewish people had all these traditions and rules and ways of thinking about God and temple worship. And he spoke to both of them and shook up their way of thinking because that's what Christ does. And it becomes just as shocking as us today. Let me give you a few examples why. The Greek philosopher Plato, he famously said this, if we are ever to have pure knowledge of anything, we must get rid of the body and contemplate things by themselves with the soul itself. So the way the Greeks thought about their soul and the body, they were antithesis to each other. For one to thrive, you had to get rid of the other. They believed that death was the ultimate release for the human soul from the miserable captivity of the human body. When you died, you finally set your soul free. And that's what they wanted. They wanted to shed the human body so the soul could be released and fly up to heaven. I love Charles Swindoll said it this way. He said, the influence of Plato permeated every aspect of religion and philosophy so that anything tangible became seen as inherently evil right? The body is bad. It's terrible. It's evil. The great hope of the Greek philosophers was to escape the foul, obnoxious material realm in order to commune with the divine mind, which existed only in the realm of pure ideas. In life, they tried to deny the body as a means of connecting with what they conceived of as God. They saw death as the liberation of the soul, the good aspect of man from the prison of the body, the evil aspect of man. The body was the prison. Only death could release you and set you free. Their goal, their philosophizing was, if you could just escape your body, then you could fully live out the goodness of your soul. So when John talks about God becoming flesh, taking on a human body, why would you do that? That was the last thing they wanted to do, the opposite of what their goal was. And in the other hand, the Jewish people that John is also speaking to, they saw God transcendent, Jehovah, Yahweh, wholly different from them. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talked about it like this. He said, among the Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. Blasphemy. He claims to forgive sins. He says he's always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now let us get this clear. He said, among pantheons, like pantheists, like the Indians, anyone might say that he was a part of God or one with God, and there would be nothing odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God in their language meant the being outside the world who made it and was infinitely different from everything else. And when you have grasped that, you'll see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that had ever been uttered by human lips. 
It was shocking to the, diff- to the Jewish people who didn't expect God to show up in the human form. It was shocking to the Greek people who thought you escape the human form. You don't come into it. God and human, it's just as shocking for us today when we really think about what this tells us about God. And John wants us to think it through. He wants us to contemplate it and puzzle over it and ask questions and bring our philosophies and our theology together and create this wonderful lens for how we see God and think about him. Because this is what's shocking about it. God adjusted to us. I mean, just just let that one line be, if you hear anything, God adjusted to us. Before we understand crucifixion and resurrection as we head into Easter, we have to understand incarnation. God became human and lived among us. This is shocking in every way because every religion, every religion that you ever study says this is how you get to God. Adjust yourself this way. Climb this ladder, do these things, follow these rules, work this hard, and then you'll get your way to God. Do enough right paths, do enough right things, adjust the scales in just the right way, and that's how you get to be good enough to get to God. But what does John show us God doing for us? God adjusts to us. God doesn't ask us to climb up the ladder. He climbs down the ladder to find us. And we see Christ showing up, serving, sacrificing, loving, being gracious and forgiving. Dane Ortland in his book talks about Jesus this way. The transcendent one, the only being in the universe who cannot be lumped together with any other being, became one of us. The creator became a creature. The author of history wrote himself into the story. This is the surprise of John. The creator became a creature so that we creatures can be restored to our creator. Listen to how powerful this is. He says, moderate grace would have said, I'll meet you halfway, right? Isn't that what you do? I'll meet you halfway, but you got to do your part. You got to do your work, your effort. I'll do mine, and then we'll meet in the middle. He says, I'll grant you a ladder and give you strength to climb it. It'll help you become what you are meant to be. But look at what God's rich grace says. I'll become what you were meant to be. He says, the purpose of the fourth gospel is not simply to convince us that the creator became a creature, but that it is by trusting this one who was crucified and raised that we receive eternal life. In our thinking of who Christ is, God's grace isn't moderate. He doesn't just parcel out pieces here and there. His grace is extravagant. It's poured out to us in overwhelming ways. Why would God do this? We have to ask, right? Like, why? what was God thinking? Why in the world would this be God's plan that Christ would have to come into this messy world and take our part and give his life on a cross? Why would Jesus leave the beauty and the splendor and the community of heaven? What was he getting out of it? Because he surely didn't need us. He had all the love and the joy and the community that he needed with God and the Holy Spirit. 
We can only understand that when Christ came into the world, he came for us, not for his benefit, but for ours. Christ stepped in, and the God who created everything walked the earth, took our part. When we talk about Christ, Christ isn't indifferent to us. Christ isn't removed that he doesn't understand. Christ lived here. He knows what we know, and he goes through, he went through what we went through. He knows us, and his heart understands and is moved towards us with compassion and love and grace. There's an incredible book about Jesus Christ. It's called Who is This Man? And it talks about the impact that Christ has had in the world in the last 2,000 years. And he builds all these beautiful examples of what happened when the people who knew Christ and went out into the world and then the people who knew them and how it trickled down to here we are in the world today. He said the disciples came to understand themselves, to have a mission or a calling. Their task was to form a community that reflected the presence and power of the God they learned about from Jesus, to extend the love of this community to everyone and invite anybody who was interested to join them. He said, where before Jesus was there a movement that actively sought to include every single human being, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, status, income, gender, moral background, or education, to be loved and transformed. That in Christ, his life, teachings, body, actions, heaven finally invaded earth. Humanity and divinity somehow intersect in this one man. He became like us so that we might become something like him. And he says, what did Christ do? He woke something up. He started something new so that now heaven can invade earth through ordinary human beings just like you and I. Sins get forgiven. Nobodies become somebodies. Outcasts enter into a relationship with God. Human lives are given divine purpose. Friends, this is Jesus Christ. And when we think about him this way, when we understand him this way, when we truly know him, it changes everything. Because listen, if there is a God who created you, if there is a God who knows you better than anyone else, then what your soul is most longing for cannot be filled by anything less than him. If Jesus really is the God and the creator of everything, nothing in all of this world, in our whole lives, will ever satisfy us like he can. Friends, we spend all of our time looking for the next thing that's going to make us feel happy or good or satisfied. We're all chasing down these identities that we think will set us apart or give us an edge or make us something to somebody. But here's the great surprise of the gospel. God already said we're somebody. God already says we matter and are loved and valuable. And the best identity we can create for ourselves is found in seeing ourselves through the lens of who Christ says we are. The author of all things wrote himself into the pages of history itself. He became God with us. He didn't say, meet me halfway. He came all the way down for us that we might end up with him. 
And why does John tell us all this, right? It's great to have knowledge. It's great to think about things and challenge our minds and our philosophy and our theology. But what does this new paradigm open up for us? Because if Christ is who he says he is, if Christ did what he said he did, then what else could we build our life on that would be stable and strong to get us through every storm that we weather? When we think about Christ this way, it leads us not to just more knowledge, but to belief and trust that we believe Christ is who he says he is. That this shocking man who said these shocking things truly is God with us. That he said he would, did what he said he would do. Every promise God has made, find their yes in Jesus Christ. And when we believe that to be true about him, it changes everything. This belief opens up a life of trust in us that we can trust God to do what he says he will do. That when life is crazy or hard or not working the way that we want it to, when things aren't coming together right, we still have this unshakable trust in God that from the beginning of time itself until today, he has not failed us yet. But here's the question. Is that the Christ we know? Is that the Christ we believe in? Is this who we've said, I can build my life here? My identity in him will satisfy the longings of my soul in a way that nothing else can. There's only one that we can live for that will fully, fully complete us, that will give us the joy and peace that we've been searching for in everything, who will also eternally forgive us. There is only one Lord that we can live for, that when we give him our hearts, the good, the bad, the hidden, all of the things in between, he will not leave us or forsake us. Please hear me. God doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us. He will make us good because he loves us. And when we believe in him, this is where his beautiful good work begins. When we believe in Jesus Christ, all our hope lies in him. Our hope for today, our hope for right now, our hope for the future. When you think about following Christ, when you think about what it means to be a Christian, right? Not what the world says it means to be a Christian, but what God shows us it means. It's not another set of rules or legalism. It's not just some cultural ethic that says do the right thing and be a good person. It is wholly based on a relationship to Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a relationship to the one who has been there for all time, who sees you, who knows you, who loves you. Because Christ is who he says he is, we can follow him, we can know him, we can build our lives on him. We can trust that the one who created us knows what is best for us. We can trust in his wisdom, his guidance, his friendship, that he will always lead us in the way that we should go. The paradigm that we need to think about, the mental map that we've accepted is, is this the Christ we know? Is this the Christ we've grown up knowing? Or 
Or have we thought about him in ways that we've never really fully understand him before? And if this is who Christ truly is, what would it look like to know him better today? What would it look like to be the one that talks about this Christ? Not the one that is mean and condemning and judging and saying, the world is a terrible place, I just need to escape it, right? But instead saying, I believe in the goodness of Jesus Christ. I believe in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Things might be rough out there, but God isn't done yet. If he's done this much so far, what couldn't he do next? Because I promise, when we see Christ in this way, it changes everything. John's future was changed because he believed and knew the goodness of Jesus Christ. And friends, when you and I believe in him, we will not be disappointed. Easter is next week. What better time to start talking about our awesome Jesus Christ? Join us on Easter. Bring your friends. Bring your family. What would it look like to think about Christ in these awesome new ways and what might he do in our lives, in our community, in our church, when we put our hope in him? Dear Father, I pray that you would help us. I thank you for the gift of the Gospel of John that helps us see you in right ways. I thank you that you love us so much that you came into this world to be with us. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you for making your home here among us that we might one day have a home with you. I pray, Father, that we would see you in right and new ways. I pray that the surprise of you being the God who creates everything, being among us, would shift something in our thinking and our hearts that we might believe in you, trust you, and follow you all the days of our lives. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.